Welcome back to a special edition JDD podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Friedman from the GW School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Today, I'll be discussing the recent CME article entitled Managing Seborrheic Keratosis, Evolving Strategies and Optimal Therapeutic Outcomes, which was published in the September edition of 2018 of the JDD. So diving right in, seborrheic keratoses are the most common benign skin tumor affecting around 83 million Americans. I'd say that's probably an underestimation. I really tell all my patients, everybody gets these. Um, about roughly 155 new cases diagnosed, uh, probably based on chart review per month. So obviously very, very common. Risk factors, I tell my patients, the longer you're around, the more likely you're gonna get these. So increasing age. Possibly sun exposure, thinking about the most common locations and distribution for these benign tumors, head and neck, uh, obviously on the arms, but we tend to also see them in body folds, likely due to uh, ongoing friction uh, relating to that anatomy. There certainly is a genetic predisposition, especially in those who uh, get a lot of them, uh, and there it seems to be an association with uh, metabolic disturbances, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, hyperandrogen states, uh, which may explain some of their pathophysiology. In terms of their uh, clinical presentation, highly variable, many different flavors. There are actually a total of nine different subtypes. You can have solitary to multiple to group to dispersed. Pretty much these can occur anywhere except for palms and soles, uh, though I tend to see them most commonly on the face, neck, uh, torso, and in body folds. Size can be also quite variable. They can be uh, small, most pinpoint requiring dermoscopy to really identify the key uh, features to distinguish it from other neoplasms. Uh, and sometimes they can be actually quite large as well um, and can be quite distressing to the patient. In terms of morphology, they typically have a stuck on appearance. I mean, these are uh, epidermal neoplasms, very often you know, superficial. So it appears as though you can almost peel them off, kind of waxy appearing. Uh, they can be papules or even plaques. Colors can range uh, tremendously, typically kind of brownish yellow. Uh, however, they can appear white, they can appear black, uh, and certainly making the diagnosis uh, without dermoscopy and other tools certainly sometimes a challenge. Uh, but I think you know the, the waxy, greasy, or velvety feel should certainly help aid in the, di the clinical diagnosis, uh, but sometimes it is not so uh, clear-cut or textbook. Now, there are some unique clinical scenarios uh, where we can see numerous uh, eruption of numerous seborrheic keratoses or inflamed seborrheic keratoses. Uh, the classic sign of lesser trilot, which is associated with adenocarcinoma of the stomach, ovary, uterus, or breast, is a setting where we can see uh, a sudden eruption of numerous seborrheic keratoses. Uh, also of note, there is a pseudo sign of lesser trilot uh, seen with the use of adalimumab, TNF blocker, uh, which is not associated with underlying malignancy, but certainly can be quite distressing and concerning given the sudden eruption of these benign lesions. We can also see in sudden onset of inflamed seborrheic keratoses with a whole host of different chemotherapeutic agents, uh, such as docetaxel, 5-fluorouracil, doxorubicin, uh, and gemcitabine. Now, I, I'm going to pose this rhetorical question, do seborrheic bother patients? Because we all know that they do. You know, Certainly, many will come in uh, concerned that this new, growing, changing, itching, peeling uh, growth uh, is, is skin cancer. And, and it's one, a great joy for us to relay that. No, it is not. It is not something concerning, does not have malignant potential. Uh, but very often that conversation will then you know, be geared more towards the uh, cosmetic impact, uh, which certainly is, is tremendous and can have an extraordinary 
impact on quality of life. Uh, in one study by uh, Jim Del Rosso and colleagues, where they looked at uh, 406 adult patients from 10 different clinical sites, a significant number of these patients uh, were quite concerned about the cosmetic impact. Um, and actually, uh, 53% of these patients uh, really only wanted treatment because of the uh, appearance of the lesion, not anything to do with the quality, any symptomatology, or any risk for skin cancer. Um, also of note, which I found interesting, about 61% tried to disguise or cover the SKs, whether it be makeup, uh, band-aids. Uh, so clearly, these very common benign leoplasms, while benign, they are exceedingly bothersome to our patient population, and many will seek treatment. In terms of the, the kind of medical component of, of the cosmetic element or the medical component of these even benign neoplasms, certainly there can be some morbidity associated with seborrheic Now, while they're often asymptomatic, because of their superficial nature, they can become irritated, they can be ripped off, whether it be caught in jewelry, clothing, um, they can easily bleed in, in individuals on uh uh, any type of anticoagulants that could be problematic. Uh, and then of course the psychosocial element, you know, I think we often delineate between the cosmetic and medical and dermatology, but there's certainly interplay, especially to psychology. Uh, and, and I think the impact on quality of life of even a cosmetic concern can have medical consequences. So overall, both the physical and psychological uh, components of this extremely ben uh, common benign neoplasm overall can have an extraordinary impact on quality of life. So knowing about the different treatment options, uh, you know, knowing how to prepare our patients and also feeling comfortable with them, I think is important because we, we can't avoid these. We can't hide under a rock from these benign neoplasms. They will come find us. One final note before moving into the discussion of treatments while I'm harping on the fact that these are benign neoplasms uh, with minimal blend potential, it is important to note that malignant cutaneous neoplasms, including non-melanoma and melanoma skin cancers, can somewhat can sometimes mirror or mimic seborrheic keratoses. In one study uh, where the, uh, investigators looked at over 4,000 DermPath cases from 2015, um, a subset of these biopsies where the root was seborrheic keratosis or inflamed seborrheic keratosis, um, a percent of these did actually come back as, uh, whether it be squamous cell carcinoma in situ, um, some of them even came back as invasive squamous cells, and a very low subset um, of the, you know, 3% of cases that were submitted that were malignant, um, about 8% of those, a very small number, uh, were actually melanoma. So, in thinking about that and thinking about our upcoming discussion on treatment, my advice is to, to think about when you treat these, if they, the, the lesion does not behave as one would expect, if you use liquid nitrogen, if you lose, use topical hydrogen peroxide, electrodesiccation curatage, these lesions, if they are seborrheic should resolve. If they do not follow that kind of linear thinking and linear treatment response, then I think you need to go back to the drawing board and consider that this could be something else. And therefore, a biopsy would be warranted on follow-up. I think that's kind of the, the end-all, be-all moral of this, uh, of, of this story. Okay, let's talk about treatment. So when we think about treatments, there's not a one-size-fits-all. 
And I think it's not just about the treatment itself, but it's also about the patient. And I, I think a very important element is the phototype of that patient. So before going through the list of both topical and, and interventional treatments, I want to spend a moment discussing some differences in different skin phototypes and then how that relates to our treatments. So in thinking about darker skin individuals, there are unique anatomical differences compared to fair skin individuals. And the, the, from a pigment standpoint, from a melanocyte and melanosome standpoint, and even epidermal standpoint, these are some of the differences. First off, the stratum corneum is a little thicker. There are more layers of the stratum corneum in darker skin types. The melanosomes are larger, denser, and they are dispersed to a greater degree than in fair skin individuals. Um, there are also an increased number of basal layer melanosomes, and the melanocytes, as compared to fair-skinned individuals, are more reactive and more responsive to irritation, injury, and inflammation. What does that mean? Well, not only are they easily irritated, but it doesn't take a lot of inflammation to induce melanogenesis. And this is the kind of biological basis for the post-inflammatory hypo and hyperpigmentation uh, that we see in many of these individuals. So along the line, we know, uh, not just in the setting of seborrheic keratosis, we know from a whole host of different dermatologic diseases, but even injury, darker skin patients uh, in particular are more prone to post-inflammatory uh, pigment alteration. Uh, and this, of course, with seborrheic keratosis treatment, uh, certainly is no exception. Post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation occurs when uh, post-inflammatory cytokine secretion causes increased melanin production. So that's one of the kind of first elements that you're actually making more melanin. Consequently, melanin is normally transported into the dermis, whereas trapped by macrophages, um, also known as melanophages, in the papillary dermis, leading uh, to a superficial hyperpigmentation. Now, the pathophysiology of post-inflammatory hypopigmentation is a little more nebulous, as it has been proposed to be controlled by autosomal dominant genetic endogenous pigmentary factors that follow individual chromatic tendency. This individual chromatic tendency posits that people with weak melanocytes, is by no means an insult, uh, which in turn are highly susceptible to damage, are more likely to develop hypopigmentation and that darker skin individuals with these weaker melanocytes are more likely to develop hypopigmentation. This is probably why we do see some variability. You know, it's obviously not one or the other. Some darker skin individuals will only develop hyperpigmentation following acne, an injury, treatment of seborrheic keratosis, whereas others are more likely to go the hypopigmented route. So we no question do see extraordinary variability in terms of this response, but we also see extraordinary variability in terms of repigmentation or uh, resolution of the hyperpigmentation from person to person. And therefore it, it's really unpredictable. So with that in mind, let's talk about some of the treatment options for seborrheic uh, keratosis. So we technically only have one FDA approved treatment for seborrheic keratosis, and that is what was formerly referred to as A101 or trade name Escada, uh, which is topical hydrogen peroxide, 40%. Uh, the majority, uh, the remainder of off-label of, of topical agents are all off-label, and we will talk about some of the studies uh, supporting their use. And then uh, I think really more the gold standard of care um, possibly until recently, has been physical modalities like cryotherapy, electrodesiccation, or electrodesiccation and curatage. And then there, you know, a smaller subset of dermabrasion, uh, blade of lasers have been used uh, for the management of these benign neoplasms.
So A101, Escada, in December 2017, this became the first topical drug to be granted FDA approval for seborrheic keratosis. It is a stabilized high concentration hydrogen peroxide, 40% topical solution uh, that really capitalizes upon the oxidizing potential of hydrogen peroxide. Now, our bodies are no strangers to hydrogen peroxide. Uh, we've been making this charged radical, uh, this free radical, since we had life, you know, from, from second one. Our immune system utilizes this potent free radical to fight foreign invaders, uh, to help uh, weed out dying cells. Um, it is a very important part of our, our immunologic system. Uh, and so we are capitalizing on our fund of knowledge of hydrogen peroxide uh, and taking a step higher in the sense that utilizing supra physiologic concentrations to get a desired outcome. So normal physiological concentrations of hydrogen peroxide are tightly regulated uh, as highly reactive hydrox hydroxyl radicals, uh, OH, and other reactive oxygen species uh, produced by hydrogen peroxide are toxic to cells. So in our bodies, uh, for the most part, we're not generating a lot of hydrogen peroxide. Now, in the same infection, yes, locally, you will generate a higher concentration for shorter time periods to eradicate this potential uh, threat to the body. Uh, but this is, once again, tightly regulated uh, by both production, but also by our inherent ant uh, antioxidant systems. Now, the local destructive effects of hydroxyl radicals and other reactive species are countered by, once again, these complex antioxidant defense systems. Uh, these include both enzymatic and non-enzymatic components. Now, if we were to use normal physiologic concentrations, it, it, we probably would not anticipate a, a, a biological or even clinical response. So in the setting of, of A101 or ASCADA, using superphysiologic concentrations really overwhelms these antioxidant defense systems locally allowing for the production of reactive oxygen species temporarily to induce direct oxidative damage to keratinocytes, inducing ultimately apoptosis of, of, those, of those epidermal cells, those keratinocytes, and of course, in this case, of seborrheic keratosis cells. So with any approved, FDA-approved uh, product, uh, Escada was studied in two identical double-blind vehicle-controlled pivotal studies. Um, very similar, very similar in numbers. Uh, each study had around 450 to 480 patients, identical studies um, where it, it very, you know, a very regimented approach with respect to looking at the treatment of four different lesions uh, over, over uh, a period actually of only a month, which kind of mirrors what would what we would do in clinical practice. So on day one, um, treatment would, uh, would be applied to four lesions. Follow-up on day 22, uh, repeat treatment would be performed if necessary. Uh, and then the, these patients would be for followed for about a little over 100 days uh, to evaluate uh, the overall outcome, both with respect to efficacy, but also any post-treatment sequelae. So between the two studies uh, that were performed, anywhere from 13 to 23% of patients cleared three of the four lesions uh, as compared to the controls where there was no clearance. Um, not a huge surprise, and I imagine it'd be kind of concerning if the vehicle uh, caused any clearance of, of the lesions. Um, so there were no, no, no change whatsoever in the, in the, in the control, whereas uh, the treated uh, as high as 23% of patients had three of four lesions completely clear. Now, four out of four is anywhere from four to 8%. Um, now, and this was that, just a reminder, this is at day 106 uh, after one or two treatments. Um, so a low percentage, but, but certainly a significant one. I think this is, you know, 
to take a moment just to kind of look at and think about primary outcome measures in FDA trials, these numbers are only representative of what of, of the outcome required to get FDA approval. It does not necessarily translate to a meaningful clinical outcome, uh, but in these cases, uh, you know, an 8% clearance of all lesions treated, uh, that's completely normal appearing skin. You know, a, a parallel I'd like to, you know, pull from is, is the, you know, FDA trials for onychomycosis drugs uh, and terbinafine being one of the most common oral uh, products used. Uh, the success rate based on the FDA was only 50%. We know it works much better than that, but the primary outcome was completely clear nails as though they were the nails you were born with. And, and we know with anyone who has anachromycosis, there's usually some change, probably possibly permanent change to the nail following a long-term infection. So to draw a parallel to that, um, you know, these numbers are low because they're asking for perfection. In real life, you can have what was defined by the patient interpretation of clearance may be very different than what the FDA considers clearance. So just, you know, uh, some food for thought when interpreting clinical trial data. Um, following these studies, they, they pulled the data and they looked at where on the body did this product seemed to work best because, you know, they were treating face, trunk, extremities, and it seemed that the greatest outcomes were from the face in terms of SK clearance. Uh, so something to consider when choosing the right patient uh, for, for this treatment. In terms of local skin reactions, quite minimal compared to vehicle. Um, there was some redness associated with, uh, with Escada treatment compared to vehicle. Um, separate from that, all the other uh, safety kind of uh, points, crusting, edema, erosion, scaling, scarring, ulcerations were pretty much analogous with, with vehicles. So other than redness, the safety was about was pretty analogous to the safety of the vehicle. Now, going back to the discussion about different skin types requiring different treatment approaches, um, I think one of the holy grails with respect to finding the right treatment for darker skin individuals, you know, given our, our gold standard being liquid nitrogen or even electrodesiccation, one of the biggest challenges to date has been using these without causing more harm than the actual lesion you're treating. Uh, and especially with liquid nitrogen, and I'll get into this, there are a lot of considerations in darker skin type. So with that in mind and, and, and looking at you know, uh, hydrogen peroxide 40% as a new FDA approved drug for a keratosis, I, along with colleagues at uh, George Washington School of Medicine, conducted an ex vivo study to compare the impact of hydrogen peroxide 40% on melanocytes, mel melanin production, melanosome dispersion compared to uh, liquid nitrogen. Um, this was a study that was recently published in the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology uh, entitled An Ex Vivo Evaluation of Cytotoxicity and Melanocyte Viability After A101 Hydrogen Peroxide Topical Solution 40% or Cryosurgery Treatment in Seborrheic Keratosis Lesions. So for this study, we want to compare the toxicological impact of A101 versus cryosurgery in Fitzpatrick 5 uh, ex vivo um, melanoderm reconstituted human epidermal equivalents. Um, these are really phenomenal models uh, to evaluate the impact of active agents uh, in human skin. Uh, the best way to envision this is these are almost you know like petri dishes, but made of human skin that have been regenerated, typically from fetal uh, from fetal foreskin, but there are other sources of these as well. And, and these ones in particular were taken from individuals of uh, with, with a Fitzpatrick five uh, skin type. Um, so from an African-American donor. Um, and so when, you know, these are reconstituted pretty much you create, uh, you can recreate a full thickness 
um, epidermis and, and dermis. Uh, and that's what we utilized here. And so we compared different concentrations of A101 uh, to five and 10 second uh, freeze-thaw cycles, um, or actually freeze cycles, um, just a single, single treatment. A uh, single freeze cycle of five or ten seconds, and then uh, utilize these assays to look at the histologic um, architecture uh, of the epidermis and dermis following the, in, these treatments. And we we sampled these about twenty four hours after uh, the treatment uh, to give time for whatever damage that occurred to actually occur. And and what we found um, wasn't so surprising. Um, on histology, there was a greater degree of injury and, and uh, cytotoxicity uh, to the epidermis in the liquid nitrogen groups, uh, both in five and 10 second treatments. In fact, after just five seconds of cryotherapy, there was complete separation of the epidermis from the dermis. So something to consider uh, when utilizing this for even actinic keratoses, warts, that really liquid nitrogen is extraordinarily caustic. And sometimes, you know, more is not necessarily better and can, of course, result in post-treatment sequelae. Now, we followed up not just looking at the uh, H&E of, of, these, uh, of these tissue explants and realized this was just normal skin. This was, these were not seborrheic keratoses. Um, you know, one of the things for the study was we did not want to, uh, we did not want to forget that peripheral skin could certainly be impacted by any treatment. And so, you know, if, if the peripheral skin remained intact, then, then hopefully, uh, the skin, uh, that, that resolves or that, that, uh, is reepithelialized following the treatment of seborrheic keratosis, so too will, uh, you know, regain some normalcy. Using some immunohistochemistry, we looked at uh, the actual uh, presence of melanocytes following treatment. We used tunnel staining, which is a marker for apoptosis. And, and once again, across the board, cryotherapy was uh, much more cytotoxic to melanocytes. Uh, there was, you know, there was an unusual dispersion of melanosomes. There are actually fewer melanosomes uh, than in the um, the A101 treated group and many more tunnel positive, meaning apoptotic cells in the cryotherapy treated group as compared to A101. So together, these results suggest that A101 could potentially reduce the risk of post-treatment pigmentary alterations, especially hypopigmentation, which is what we typically see in African-American patients. A101 treated samples importantly show no dermal pigmentary incontinence, a process that underlies uh, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation in addition to the hypopigmentation due to melanocyte injury. To elucidate the safety and efficacy of A101 on darker skin types, there is an ongoing clinical trial being conducted to evaluate the risk of hypopigmentation or hyperpigmentation uh, after treatment of DPNs, a subset of seborrheic keratoses, in subjects with Fitzpatrick 5 to 6 skin. Um, and, and this is, uh, you can find the study on clinicaltrials.gov, the identifier NCT03224598. All right. So moving from the FDA approved to the off-label and, you know, as dermatologists, we love off-label. We are the off-label king. So let's review some of uh, the data out there for some off-label therapies. First, tazeratine, um, which preferentially binds retinoic acid receptors, beta and gamma in keratinocytes, you know, by doing so can promote potent anti-proliferative effects. And being a neoplasm, it is hyperproliferative. So the International Journal of Dermatology in 2004, a small clinical trial was published uh, showing that uh, about half of patients treated 
uh, twice a day um, with Tazeratine for hypercaridotic SKs in a 16-week period uh, showed resolution of these lesions. Um, so, so not a tremendous response, but certainly, you know, a, a drug we're quite familiar with and something we can utilize uh, in, um, in, in certain patients. Omiquimod, which is an immune stimulator, uh, it is a ligand for TOLAC receptor 7, which induces uh, a TH1 response, uh, generates interferon, uh, used for condyloma, actinic keratosis, even sometimes non-melanoma, and even melanoma skin cancers in the right patients, off-label, of course. This has been studied, uh, one, one small study in the International Journal of Immunotherapy in 2004, a 5% was applied to SKs in 34 patients three times per week for 16 weeks. Um, 32 of 34 patients achieved total clearance after about 13 weeks. So certainly an interesting finding, small study, uh, but something that we can certainly try. Maybe this implicates that there could be some role for HPV in these lesions, unclear, um, but also we know amiquamon has anti-angiogenic properties, so maybe that is the mechanism through which I cleared SKs, but until further research is performed, we won't know. Another study looked at ammonium lactate in the JAD 1990s, a very old study, ammonium lactate 12% in 58 patients, um, complete resolution in two patients, and significant reduction uh, in the thickness of SKs overall in all patients. Uh, but there really was no difference in length, color, or surface change when you compare it to the control group. So certainly we know keratolytics can help soften them, but clear them, mm, not so sure. Uh, what about some alpha hydroxy acids? These promote exfoliation of keratinocytes uh, and even proliferation of new cells. Uh, glycolic acid and even more potent pyruvic acid. Uh, these have these are commonly used for resurfacing the skin and correcting photoaging. There was a uh, once again a small study in dermatologic surgery in 2012 uh, where pyruvic acid 40% was was used um, and 70% for really thick lesions greater than three millimeters um, in 21 patients. Uh, with both AKs and SKs, it was left for about five to seven minutes and then removed by curette. Um, and the study showed complete resolution with no recurrence after one year in all patients. So, this, you know, this is certainly a mix of topical and some procedural, uh, but, but obviously, you know, this is off-label, this would be cosmetic, uh, but something to certainly consider. Urea, uh, also an important potent keratolytic and natural moisturizing factor, very impressive hygroscopic properties to restore skin hydration. In a small uh, pilot study published in SkinMed 2008, uh, 20 patients with SK utilized urea ointment 50%. That's pretty high. Usually we're working in the 20 to 40% range. This was applied daily um, and uh, patients were instructed to superficially scrape off their lesions once or twice a week whatever that means, for about six weeks. Um, and a good number of these patients uh, did report satisfaction with treatment um, as well as, uh, you know, overall satisfaction with, uh, with the protocol. Uh, but certainly um, limited study, 20 patients. So, so take that with a grain of salt. Moving on to procedural, cryosurgery. Um, in this case, tissue is exposed to sub-zero temperatures and you form ice crystals in the skin. Uh, as a result of osmosis, water will tend to leave the cell. Um, but in, in, this, in this case, the crystallization inside the cells expand and break the cell membrane. So pretty much forming this, these ice crystals inside the cells ultimately results in cell lysis and cell death. So to, to really, uh, to ensure that you're forming those ice crystals the right way, you wanna freeze fast, thaw slow. They should make a t-shirt that says that. Freeze fast, thaw slow. So little spritzes that don't really form that, you know, that nice white, you're not going to get the desired result. You know, to hit it hard and it should then uh, thaw very slowly. 
Pros, it's fast, it's easy, it's cheap. I mean, we all have one of those giant canisters. It's versatile. We can use it for a lot of different things. Uh, actinic keratosis, warts. Um, even sometimes you can think about sebaceous hyperplasia. Um, a lot of certain things you can use it. You know, there have been studies looking at its use uh, in place of electrodesiccation and curatage to treat superficial uh, squamous cell carcinomas. Um, it's simply safe in, in most underlying conditions. The cons, however, depending on thickness, you may need to debulk. Cold intolerance, this hurts. This hurts a lot. You know, it's, you know, try licking uh, a, a metal bar in dead of winter. I mean, that's what it feels like. Um, you know, so these patients certainly, depending on their pain threshold, some cannot tolerate it. Some need pain relievers or anxiolytics. Uh, and, and usually after you treat, it, it hurts for at least 10, 15 minutes, even longer, uh, depending on your freeze-thaw cycle. Um, and then, of course, as we mentioned, some of those post-inflammatory changes in darker skin types can be even more disabling than the primary lesion. Post-op care, um, certainly you want to warn them about the swelling that will occur later, possibly vesiculation, depending on your treatment protocol. You know, you want to give guidance about how to manage the vesicles or bullet if they do form. Um, the more you freeze, the worse it will be. Um, and healing time certainly is longer in certain locations. Lower legs uh, certainly heal slower. Um, so giving good wound care instructions, and I recommend a handout will save you time, certainly is, is the way to go. Other pitfalls, uh, I mentioned the pigmentary changes. I don't think we can hit that home enough. Uh, certainly infection can happen, you know, if you have vesiculation and then erosions or ulcerations, that denuded skin certainly is open season to the nasties out in the environment. Can certainly inadvertently burn locations that you didn't intend to um, or uh, from the expansion of that, you know, thermal energy to the surrounding skin, get injury elsewhere. If you form subabdominal bulla, certainly milia or even hypertrichosis can form in those areas as well. Electrosurgical procedures. Uh, so these are classified according to degree of tissue destruction, superficial, deep, and then even cutting. And these include electrodesiccation or fulguration for superficial, electrocoagulation for deep, and electrosectioning for cutting. Post-operative care, immediate post-op care, um, they heal pretty well by, by secondary attention. You know, they they certainly, um, you know, don't require aggressive local care. Uh, I, I will note that usually about 10 to 15 minutes after treatment, the areas will get very red, will become somewhat edematous. Um, I often do not... Um, do not bandage these unless uh, I've created a significant crust. Uh, and I instruct all of my patients uh, to repeatedly apply um, some, uh, some viscous uh, barrier protectant um, to really maintain hydration. So you get appropriate stratum corneum turnover. Um, and, uh, you know, depending on patients, certainly scarring can happen, uh, especially those who are more prone to hypertrophic scarring. So something to certainly consider. Now, the adverse events associated with both cryosurgery and electrocautery, uh, these include many things such as immediate site pain, erythema, local edema, encrusting, blister and bowl formation, as, as I've already been mentioned, uh, and even bleeding at treatment sites. Uh, now, all patients are susceptible to some degree of, of these things. Uh, however, dark, darker skin individuals are particularly vulnerable uh, to post-inflammatory pigment alteration uh, and even uh, more significant scarring. Now, melanocytes are also the most sensitive epidermal cell to severe thermal changes. And this goes into the discussion before about anatomical differences between skin phototypes. 
Now, melanocytes, amazingly, are our sensitive temperatures less than five, negative five degrees Celsius. Now, this is extremely pertinent for cryosurgery surgery because that utilizes negative 196 degrees um, uh, Celsius uh, with freezing liquid nitrogen. Therefore, melanocytes are going to be the first of any superficial cell to succumb to cryosurgery for, and for these patients, possibly resulting in disfiguring and often even permanent dispigmentation. As such, uh, we need to be cautious of this and certainly want to consider uh, treatment with things such as cryosurgery. Um, you know, the location certainly matters. Visible locations, sun exposed uh, locations are going to be more susceptible uh, and therefore uh, we should be mindful of that when, when picking the right treatment for seborrheic keratoses. I mentioned lasers earlier, ablative lasers, uh, and the YAG, CO2 lasers. None of these have been compared in large-scale studies, so I really can't provide much guidance, uh, but there are those out there who certainly use these uh, to treat seborrheic keratoses. The future, um, from a, a pathophys standpoint, it, it's been identified that you know there have been there are mutations in fibroblast growth factor receptor three and PIK3CA uh, that may be contributing factors to the pathogenesis of SKs, and therefore targeting these uh, these genes may be of some utility. Um, there is a uh, there's an ongoing study looking at inhibitor of the FGFR3 pathway with five percent potassium dobisolate. Um, but more, more investigation and more study is needed to really determine whether this is an effective therapy. So certainly there are more treatments coming down the pipeline. Uh, however, uh, not to be a pessimist, I, I don't think we'll see them anytime soon. So for now and for the foreseeable future, we still only have one FDA approved treatment for SKs. So to kind of conclude, you know, there are some important factors when considering what you should be selecting as a reliably efficacious therapeutic agent for the treatment of SKs. You know, these include vehicle preference, cost, length of treatment required, you know, thinking about multiple treatments, availability of the product, and, and even the side effect profile. An ideal treatment would be a topical therapeutic agent with low side effects that is also covered by insurance. Best of luck with that, of course, uh, with uh, something that's considered cosmetic. Now, this, of course, would provide the patient with a non-invasive option, decrease the risk of post-treatment discoloration or other sequelae that come with the current procedural treatments. Uh, while I've discussed several cases of topical medications successfully treating SKs in small sample populations, once again, we only have one FDA-approved uh, topical treatment, and because it's FDA-approved, it has been studied in larger populations, you know, in two uh, identical phase threes, uh, with each with a little over 450 patients in each. So certainly reproducible and uh, uh, translatable data to the general population. We need further investigations um, to really make evidence-based uh, treatment recommendations. As I mentioned, most of the things I've mentioned are off-label, they're anecdotal evidence, and certainly our own experience with things like liquid nitrogen and electrocautery, uh, you know, enable us to use these in uh, a safe little asterisk, as safe as, as possible manner, uh, but certainly more research is needed or studies are needed to really guide uh, both the current dermatology community, but also future dermatologists uh, coming out of residency um, over, over the coming years. So the most evidence-based approach for treating SKs really depends on the patient's skin type. Um, I, you know, I think that's kind of the important theme of the, this podcast is, is considering the skin type. So in lighter skin individuals, cryotherapy 
may be appropriate. You know, the post-inflammatory uh, pigment alteration may not be that noticeable. But in darker skin patients, certainly that has to be considered. Uh, but certainly, even in the fairest of skin types, that may be something to consider, along with, of course, the pain and downtime associated with cryotherapy as compared to something like uh, topical hydrogen peroxide. So lots of things to consider. Uh, it's not just about the lesion you're treating, but the patient as well. Uh, so seborrheic keratosis will continue to be to be a problem for us and patients. Uh, the numbers will increase, the prevalence will increase as the population ages. Once again, the longer they're around, the longer we're around, the more these will pop up. As our understanding of SK and its pathogenesis continues to evolve, uh, we hope to see newer treatment modalities. Um, we hope to see them emerge, enter uh, the, the workplace, uh, giving us uh, more than just one uh, FDA-approved option. Uh, but as the off-label bandits, certainly we'll continue to use everything at our disposal to help our patients reach their, their goals uh, and, and meaningful outcomes uh, and minimize the sequelae of said treatments. Thank you so much for joining us for this special bonus edition of the JDD podcast and stay tuned for future editions in the following months.